Welcome to the CityDAO podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gilbert Williams. CityDAO is exploring decentralized asset ownership on chain, starting with a simple piece of land purchased in Wyoming during 2021. Each parcel of land becomes an NFT that can be owned collectively by the DAO or by individuals just like you and me. CityDAO is a DAO. In other words, it's a decentralized autonomous organization, meaning that land governance, treasury, and other things, including this show you're listening to right now, are all managed by the community. Check out the FAQ at citydao.io to learn more, or check out the CityDAO Discord channel to get all the latest updates. Now let's get started with the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the CityDAO pod, where we talk about network cities, the network state, the future of human civilization, and other related fascinating subjects. The easiest way to support the show is to please just take five seconds of your time. It's my only ask. Just subscribe and like and give us a little one-liner review. Hopefully it's positive. It really actually goes a long way to helping the show, and uh, I'd really appreciate it. As of this year, CityDAO is the first to put real-world physical land ownership into a DAO LLC and then to put the governance of that land on chain via NFTs. The intention, of course, of CityDAO is to take steps towards a better functioning civilization for us all. So remember to join the discussions on our Discord and follow us on Twitter and join our Twitter spaces. Your voice matters a lot and your input is really important. Now, today here with us on the show is Luis Quende from Notion3. I'm really excited to be chatting with Luis. I found Luis through a list of the top 20 projects working on the concept of a network state put out by Bology on his website. I'll put the link to that list on the show notes of this episode because it's a, it's a great list and a really good resource. So obviously, we're going to cover a lot of subjects about what they're doing in the network state space, their progress so far, their manifesto. I read it and it's definitely interesting to check out. I encourage you to have a look. I'll put the link to that on the show notes as well. And we're basically just going to geek out big time about network city related subjects, nation3.org. I found you guys, like I said, through the Bology list of top 20 projects there. And it turns out I ended up seeing that Greg was there. Greg was on the show here in the really early episodes. I think it was like episode three or four. So it was was cool to see that, you know, it is a small community and we all are in the same space and bouncing around and learning and participating in what each other are doing. So maybe you can just explain in your own words for listeners here, what is Nation 3? Maybe just start right there. Yeah, sure. So, so Nation 3, it's, uh, it's a concept of applying Web3 to creating a sovereign country. So we're basically working on creating like this zero-tax, Web3-powered, solar punk society. The idea is to grow the society online first and land last. So basically try to like create this community of people that are opinionated towards creating alternative societies and then kickstart an internal economy around it. And then finally, when that works out and you have a critical mass, then you can start talking about, you know, you can get some land uh, in different places. Some is going to be sovereign land, some is not going to be sovereign land, but still having like a physical presence. But that's kind of like once you have a critical mass and that you that you do that and not the other way around. Because the internet is a place that you can really grow faster than traditional nation states. And it's kind of like our secret source, so to say. You know, if I put some context on this for some people that maybe are not quite familiar with the concept of a network state. What we're talking about here is that the concept, the definition of a city has been the same for thousands of years, and there hasn't really been that much change. But obviously, we're in a digital age. Internet came around, changed things. Online communities started to be built. Web3 came around. Then asset ownership started to be looked at and treated a little bit differently. And online communities started to function and behave a little bit differently too. I think one of the easiest highlighted examples might be 
the Wall Street bets fiasco and an exciting moment going against Citadel Hedge Fund. And we got this online community that essentially very nearly took down a massive hedge fund just because they decided to. That's it. They just woke up one morning like, you know what? This is what we're going to do. Boom, done. This is big power that these online communities are finding. And in my opinion, the only reason they didn't fully succeed in taking it down was because of Robinhood kind of standing in the way. Had that not happened, it might have actually gone a lot further. So online communities are growing in strength. And I think that online communities are starting to realize that they have strength. And this raises the question, at what point in human civilization will an online community eventually receive and be recognized as a country? and have diplomatic relations with other countries, and maybe have a seat at the United Nations or at, at NATO or in some other capacity dealing on a country-to-country level from an online community. Because think about it, Iceland, for example, 600,000 people in the country, there's numerous online communities that are significantly larger than 600,000 people. So this isn't about population quantity anymore. This is about other factors. And then it raises the question, okay, well, what are these factors? And what is the transition point between an online community to a country community? And these are the questions that I ask myself and that we're talking about right now. So Lewis, maybe on, on that vein, you mentioned starting with building an online community first and then moving forward from there. One of the questions on my side that I think about a lot is when is an online community strong enough to, let's say, take the next step? I mean, CityDAO, we moved into land pretty quick. Part of it is an exploration and an experiment because we wanted to do that. And now everyone else can do that and we can show people how to do that. But did we go too fast as a community? Did we go too slow as a community? What are your thoughts on when is, in your opinion, Nation 3 going to be an online community strong enough to move to the next steps in your roadmap? Yeah, so I think it's, I mean, it's a really good question. It's kind of like the holy grail of network states slash cloud nations is like how you can actually get to that critical mass. Because for nation states, for traditional nation states, it's kind of very easy. Like they already have this monopoly over land. So for them, it's quite easy to come up with services. And then citizens are not really customers. They are more like you know people that can only have forced into these services. So they don't have to think much about product market fit. But cloud nations, we, we have to. And so the core premise, the core principle that you have to achieve is what is the first set of services that can help you create an internal economy. And so when you think about emergent traditional nation states, but it's still pre-emergent in their time, such as Singapore or, or Switzerland, they didn't have oil, they didn't have these natural resources, but they had a very powerful system of law. And so by creating this system of law, they created a place where people could go to the business and to do transactions, having some legal security. And by doing so, people move there, businesses move there. And then eventually everyone started creating this like very prosperous society. And today they are some of the most successful countries in the world. And so we're kind of like following the same approach in a sense. We are starting to create a system of law, a very strong governance process inside the country, inside Nation 3. And by doing so, we want to attract builders that want to like use our system of law, which is a little bit different than in traditional countries because like, for example, they're working on a decentralized court. So you can solve disputes in a decentralized manner without needing to go to any traditional court, which we all know that they work pretty badly and they are super inefficient. And so by doing so, we're kind of like creating this community of people that want to transact on the internet and they need like a decentralized jurisdiction. And so they, they go there, they become citizens, they transact. And then eventually once you have like this internal economy of people that are transacting with each other and using your services and it grows to a significant number of people, then you can say, all right, we're going to negotiate with a special economic zone. We're going to buy land somewhere and we can actually use our system of law or, or something similar. 
to govern that place. And, and if you're really proven, if your system of law is really proven, then it's much easier to do that transition. But of course, it depends so much project by project. Like that's kind of like our current state, but there are different angles you can take. For me, this is an interesting one because I believe that historically speaking, it's the one that it's the most proven. So it's like a matter of kind of like taking that and adapting it to the wealthier world and, and to how much more efficient we can make things and citizen owned instead of like just having a monolith nation state that no one really owns or no one really like feels their own. We can use that, but really make a citizen own, create incentives for people to really feel their theirs and then achieve that critical mass. So how important do you think it is that there's a certain quantity size of community, like 100,000 people or a million or 10,000? How important is the quantity of people on an online community in relation to building a network state? So I think it's important, but I think the most important thing is the value you create, right? So as you were mentioning, there are some states that don't have much people living in there, but they are very productive, they're very efficient, and they bring things to the table, they export services. And so I do think that you don't necessarily need to have millions of people for this to work. In fact, if we kind of like translate some learnings from the startup world, sometimes you need very few people, but they are very committed that nobody will what you're doing and they want to be part of it. So otherwise, probably having a hundred very engaged citizens that really care about what you're doing is better than having a hundred K that don't even want to be part of your nation, which is very common today in traditional nation states. People don't really feel they belong. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have like a, a million people with 1% engagement versus a hundred thousand people with a hundred percent engagement, the hundred thousand is actually significantly stronger. I'm kind of asking, because I think about these subjects a lot, right? How would we measure activity? Would we measure it based on chatter on Discord or responses and comments on Twitter? Or do we look at the average quantity of votes that happen on a snapshot, let's say, and measure activity engagement that way? Or maybe it's a blend of all three. How would you measure engagement? Yeah. So one of the learnings that I had working with DAO since I, I founded Aragon in 2016 was that there is an amazing tool called SourceCred that people are using. And so how it works basically is you can take like all of these sources like Discord, the forum, like, you know, different channels GitHub, and then you can create like basically like a ranking and like a, like a reputation system. And then based on that reputation, you can actually reward people. And so we have that working at Nation3. Uh, we call it NationCred. And basically it's like a baseline of if you are an engaged citizen, you basically just get tokens every month. And that makes a lot of sense. And also it's, it's really interesting because it really helps us make people engaged and engage in meaningful kind of like discussions. I mean, you can also probably game it and, and just write a lot of, you know, a lot of text or whatever, but then there are ways that you can like, basically remove that from the ranking. So like, you know, it's been kind of proven. I've seen this work in multiple DAOs now. So we're taking that approach too. In your manifesto, you talked about building and starting with a cloud nation first. And you specifically seem to differentiate between a cloud nation versus a network state. And then of course, CityDAO, we talk about network city a lot. So it's like, what are the differences in your mind between these three? What's the difference between, let's just start with the basics between a cloud nation versus a network state. I don't think there are many differences. I think it's kind of like the, the same concept, but in a little bit of a different light. Like, you know, in the network state, you're kind of like emphasizing more the network part. Maybe that's like federated. You have like multiple embassies around the world. With Cloud Nation, I think there's more emphasis on the cloud part. Like, you know, it's an online community first, and then it might have some land at some point in time. But the, the important part is the, is the cloud part. And in my opinion, for a Cloud Nation to work, it needs to be valuable by itself without even having land. Having land is, of course, the kind of like next step. 
but it needs to be viable. It needs to provide services that are valuable by themselves, even in its cloud state. So you're talking about, for example, as a citizen of Canada, for example, I have healthcare, I have protection by police and military and through courts and a number of other perks that I receive as a Canadian citizen. Are you talking about that? Like it's Because in a way, to be a citizen is almost like having a membership. It's some sort of really exclusive and high-end membership. And it costs me tens of thousands of dollars, depending on my income. I've had hundreds of thousands of dollars costs on those memberships per year, depending on what's going on at that time. Is that what you're talking about? Is like what kind of base benefits you could say of a membership category that you'd receive to be a part of Cloud Nation? Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. I think a Cloud Nation then needs to be valuable per se, even when it's still a Cloud Nation and doesn't have land. Yeah, so that's interesting. And then it would be easy per se to go and talk to a whole bunch of different, let's say, insurance companies or car group, car sales groups, or just online services, fill in the blanks and build a membership package, so to say, that had 25 different perks, 10% discount here, first time free here, all those kind of things. I just wonder if that's enough substance of value. I mean, maybe it's in the right direction. What's your vision in terms of giving benefit to people in Cloud Nation, in Nation 3, I mean? Yeah, that, that's another angle. Like from my end, the thing I'm most excited about is giving them the ability to interact in a, in a system of law, basically. So like the reason we're creating the Nation 3 court is so that we can have a system of law. And so like, you know, if you're on the internet and you're interacting with another user that is like an, an anon, for example, and you have no trust with them whatsoever, but you still want to interact with them with some baseline kind of like guarantees that you're not going to get screwed over, then you create an agreement, you put on some collateral, some mistake, and then if, if one of the parties doesn't really honor the agreement, then you can open a dispute and that can get sorted out and then you can get some of your stake back or, or the stake of the other part that misbehaved. And so I think that is really valuable. Actually, we had that kind of like issue ourselves. Like at some point when you run a DAO, you have this moment in which you have unknown contributors that are super valuable. And then you got to give them like GitHub permissions or you got to put them in a multi-sig. And like you know, this vision we are building of having open organizations and having DAOs, that is the way that things should be. It should be decentralized. It should be like, you know, power to the edge. But at the same time, we don't have a strong guarantees when we interact with anonymous people over the internet right now. And so I think that a system of law powered by decentralized courts is what can really change that. And if you have enough citizens that are using it and that are looking up collateral, which in our case, our token nation, then that drives up demand for the token and then that obviously funds the DAO itself and funds the nation state. So let's build on that for a second. Your manifesto kicks off with a lot of discussion about current challenges in war, for example. And you're talking specifically about we started as tribes and then there was conquering and that became kingdoms and empires. And there's this inclining and this bloody past, you could say, of humanity and, and war. I'm wondering, why did you choose to start the manifesto with that style of approach? Because I'm assuming that you have a lot of thoughts around that and you probably also have a vision on how to change that. So let's maybe talk a little bit about how the network state could lead to a more peaceful society. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the, I mean, Nation 3 per se was, was started by a group of friends. And one of them, she is Ukrainian, well, born in Crimea, so kind of like Ukrainian slash Russian, depending on the time. But she's seen all of that stuff that's happening in, in Ukraine now, of course, but also in the past uh, with the invasion of Crimea in, in 2014. And, you know, if you look at Russia today, it's really scary. It's not only scary because it's like literally going to Ukraine and, and just basically taking over a country. I mean, at least they're failing, it looks like. But it's even more scary because we allowed a dictator to win power during decades and decades, and still to date, over the country with the most nukes in the world. 
like this person combined, I think there are like three people basically that need to like give their, their go ahead to nuke the whole world. They have nukes enough to use any world, like end any kind of life on earth. And how we have allowed that to happen is completely mind blown. So we start off talking about war and kind of like talking about like these states that for decades and centuries have become more and more weaponized. This is what works for them, right? Like at some point, investing into military expenditure was the best investment an Eastern state could do because you invest into that and then you can conquer other countries, you can bully other countries, and then you can go and steal their, their oil or natural resources, diamonds, gold, all of that. Most big countries have done that at some point in time, you know, either Spain with the gold or Russia doing some nasty stuff with diamonds in Africa. The list goes on, let alone, of course, colonization back in the day, just kind of like another, another topic. And so now I believe that's changing. Like now for the first time, I believe that like all countries are so militarized that finally like military expenditure is kind of like a, a zero-sum game. Like countries cannot really put more money into military and make more money off it meaningfully. And so for the first time, the return on violence is changing also because of crypto, I believe. Like now it's not that you can conquer a country and seize the assets or like they take it away from people because now these assets live somewhere else. They live in the internet, they live in, in bits. And so I believe that's quite mind-blowing and I believe that's a paradigm change. And because of that, we can start building these countries that cannot be seized by anyone. If tomorrow there is one of these big countries that wants to seize Nation 3, good luck. You know, try to take down Ethereum. Good luck with that. And that is so powerful. And that's why we started with, with that because that's a big paradigm change. Like the fact that you can create a DAO and this time it's unstoppable, is what makes it really a cloud country and a sovereign country. Interesting. And so, I mean, this touches a little bit onto the subject of digital versus real world. And at a certain point, so I guess maybe I should pre-qualify, in your vision, let's say X amount of years in the future for Nation 3, I would imagine at some point there will be physical pieces of land spread across the world, basically. And if you're a citizen of Nation 3, you'd have access to that land. So when that happens, and we do have physical land, we will need oil, for example. We will need power and electricity wires that are crossing through other nation states in order to power the light bulbs in these places. And same with ethernet cables that are giving us internet and so on and on and water and, and having plumbing that's crossing through different countries at this point. Because like right now, you know, let's just say Canada, for example, you know, big plot of land. If we're going to lay up some plumbing pipe to go through one geographic location to another, it's all going to be within the same country. But in the future where we might have, let's say, countries don't own land within a certain geographical parameter, they're all spread out all, all over the place, just to lay a piece of pipe or to put a telephone wire is going to, by default, probably have to cross over several different countries in order to get to that place that we're actually living in, we're trying to service. So there is always going to be a certain amount of physical, let's say, resources that need to be defended or negotiated on to some degree. So even though in the future of a network state, some bully country can't take down Ethereum, let's say, or take down Bitcoin, they could threaten to chop the telephone wires or blow up the plumbing that's giving us water or something like that. It seems like it's going to be a different style of treaty and negotiation that might exist, but it is going to still have a physical world connection. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or I'm thinking way in the future here, but I, you know, I'm trying to visualize some of the, how this works. Yeah. I mean, like once you achieve the dream of actually becoming a cloud nation that, that achieves some success, after that, if you are successful enough, then this will come in. And I think there are multiple answers. It's hard to know right now, but my take is that there's probably going to be like multiple layers of a nation stack. So like first, once we create cloud nations, they are eventually going to commoditize what a nation state is. So like 
they will create and propel a lot of competition with traditional nation states. And so traditional nation states will have to react and start treating a little bit more citizens like their customers. And I believe the role will drastically change. I think the role will either change or they will disappear and just go bankrupt. And those who change the role will probably be more like a service provider, like a, almost like a, you can think of it as like hardware. So like, you know, they're going to run the hardware, which in this case is the land, and then they will allow kind of like software to run on this hardware and the software will be these cloud nations. And then on top of these cloud nations that will provide some very efficient system of law, you probably have cities, which are kind of like programs slash communes. And so, which I also think an interesting kind of like analogy of how you have probably like cities out that are kind of like working on kind of like small scale, how you run a city, which is very, very important because then you can replicate that and create it like all across the world. But then they would rely on a system of law that is kind of like provided by cloud nation. And then finally, a cloud nation could probably negotiate a special economic area with a traditional country that will kind of like renew itself and become a thinner layer of the, of the stack. And the reason I think that's valuable is that we spend so much time figuring out global borders with wars and blood, and we don't want to recreate that again, right? And so as much as I don't like traditional countries, I think some of them will find their way into using service providers, keep their borders like they are, and just enable others to experiment on their land. But just kind of like keep that base physical safety of like, okay, these are our borders and they're going to remain these borders. In order to get to this place and make these big steps in the network state becoming reality, there's a certain level of education that has to happen. And you touched on education a fair bit inside your manifesto as well. What do you see as like as a country? Usually every country has their own form of education system. So in CityDAO, we have the Education Guild, and they're doing a lot of work on that. And I think it's fair to say, shout out to David, by the way, it took me a fair bit to realize and understand the real tangible necessity of education inside of a country. But every country has a form of education. And it's not like an official checkmark. It's not something that like usually a country has their own currency, and they have their own military. And these are like absolutes, right? But the more gentle sort of implicit almost requirements, but definitely standard norms at least, are that there is a certain style of education and philosophy that not only just shared and spread amongst the citizens, but also influenced by the citizens to create a certain norm. And sometimes that's one of tolerance and a blend of different backgrounds. And sometimes it's more centralized and focused, not centralized, but more focused and narrowed and honed in. So the role of education, where would that be on your roadmap? Like you're starting with community, you're building the cloud nation first. At some point, education has to be a core element of Nation 3 and any other network state that's coming up. Where do you see that? And how do you see the education system working in, an, in any network state, so to say, theoretically? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. Like, I think education is the one thing you want to get right. And we can have short-term changes that impact the world positively, but ultimately education is the one that will. Like right now, we have massive issues with the education system that comes from like the industrial age. And like currently, I think I saw... I mean, it depends on the report, but like some reports estimate that around 70% of Americans hate their jobs, which is kind of crazy. And I think partly it's just because of like education. And if you think about the US, people are quite like entrepreneurial compared to other places. In other places like Spain, for example, I know like in Spain, people like really hate their jobs and they don't do anything about it. There's nothing like- I didn't know that. <laughs> they are not like entrepreneurial. They are just waiting until the end of the day for, for them to like go home. And that's just so terrible. Like we, ha- we haven't arrived here for like millions of years of like civilization to be a person who literally stands out in a store counting people that come in. I've seen that happen with the whole COVID thing regulation of like, you know, maximum amount of people in a store. Like someone stands out and just clicks a counter on the phone 
to touch when people enter the store or, or leave. And like, I want to cry when I see that. It's like, how many millions of years of evolution do we need more to like realize that we are creative beings and we have a lot of potential in us? And education currently is just not really enabling that. And so I think education will, will come at some point in the future. And you, we just need to like investigate a lot on different methods. Like I think since like Montessori, for example, I don't think there's been an education system or kind of like an approach that has drastically changed how kids learn in kind of like mainstream slash in production environments. Like there are things being researched, but nothing really like transcending. And, you know, Montessori comes from decades and decades ago. So like we really have to think about all of this. And you have to also like not be too prescriptive, I think. Uh, and that's the other thing. We don't want to recreate the propaganda machines that traditional nation states are. So I think you have to offer a playground with multiple options for parents slash the kids themselves to kind of like decide what style fits them best, and then they can go and pursue it. But I don't think you should also like just force it top down. I think that was a mistake. But yeah, I mean, TLDR, we need to like fund a lot of startups that are working on, on education and we need to like just reinvent the schools completely. And that's something that interests me a lot. Like when I think about Nations, I think about the Nations themselves, but I also think about the smaller communes that form everywhere where people can invent new ways of raising children that we haven't even tried now, that are less lonely, that are more creative, in which kids can run again on their yard with other kids and play football, that stuff. When you say the words to give people a playground to recreate education, you're essentially leaning heavily into the open markets, let's say freedom markets. And I don't mean freedom in the weird, corrupt sense that we see sometimes going around. I don't mean that at all. I just mean, fundamentally, let's remove constraints on the creative process and let the creative mind bring up a solution. And if people really like that solution, then do more of it. Whereas in, let's say, North Korea, I mean, it's a very constricted top down. This is what the facts are as decided by ultimately one individual, and everyone has to believe it now. So it seems like you're talking a lot about a freedom market that has recognition and respect and defense for individual rights, and that the individual would play a primary role in everything in the society. Because it either comes top down or it comes bottom up. And if it comes bottom up, we're talking about the individual. If it comes top down, we're talking about centralization. Do you have any thoughts on that? You want to expand yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really a challenge because when people are not used to being like sovereign individuals, it's really hard for them to make their own decisions and to understand that like it is their life and they have control over it. I see this a lot in Southern European countries where people have learned a lot to use rely on the state to provide and do everything for them. And so I think it will take time and it's kind of like an iterative process. You cannot just leave the open field for people who have never run in their life. Like you have to teach them how to walk first and then that, that, will, that will come naturally. But I do believe that that's the reason why we have to start with people that really need the services and that want to learn and that want to like really invest themselves into, okay, how could my life be different if I'm not tied to this traditional nation, but I'm in this community that offers them more opportunities and that is like fully online and maybe I can even do my work online and stuff like that. So like, I believe that we have to focus on those people that really can go through the learning curve, sometimes even finance that learning curve. Like we're thinking about that a lot currently for nation three citizens, like how can we onboard more citizens and maybe like for them, like literally two months course on how to like interact with Web3 and how to ultimately become a, a citizen of a cloud nation. And maybe that's helpful to even just kind of like finance it from the outside, because then you're going to have someone that really gets it and someone that, you know, in the future, when you kind of start creating this kind of like education systems, can make good decisions and good choices. Like ultimately, it's about creating a society, in my opinion, of enlightened individuals that are sober individuals, 
And it's more about that than creating a society full of sheep. But unfortunately, the traditional nation states have just wanted to create sheep for like decades. And that's something that is quite toxic. And I mean, we're seeing that today. Again, in Southern Europe, for example, I'm very familiar with it. Like there's crazy youth unemployment. A couple of years ago, it was over 50% in Spain. And, you know, partly it's because of a terrible setup that the boomers have left us. But it's also just because like these people kind of have entrepreneurial mindset, don't understand that they can do things themselves and that they can actually just go and create a business or provide for themselves. They don't need the state to provide for them. So I think that communist mindset needs to be completely like eradicated. When we talk about currency, it's a bit of a subject shift here, but it's all obviously related. On your manifesto, you talk about Bitcoin as a global currency, and I see it that way as well. A lot of people and a lot of communities that are essentially formed in the last three or four years, they kind of missed the whole beginnings. They missed Bitcoin in its early stages. They missed mining Bitcoin from your laptop before it had any physical value. They missed the first transactions. They missed Bitcoin Pizza Day. They don't even know what it is. And they're just jumping into this buzzword called Web3 and have these visions of creating a brand new coin for the 670,000th time, and that this brand new coin is now going to be the best one. And it struck me in your manifesto how you talked about Bitcoin, and I appreciated that because I think a lot more people need to do that as well. Why do you see Bitcoin as the global currency, and why did you not either suggest or reference a different type of currency? So the reason I see it as a global currency when I went into Bitcoin in like 2013, I already thought about this network state cloud nation thing. Like it was the first thing, in fact, that I thought, all right, if we have this, then there is no reason whatsoever why, I don't know if it's 10 years, 20 years on the line, it's probably going to be more than I thought, but there's no reason why you don't have communes all around the world that are transacting with each other without even knowing where they are or who they are. So they can use this magic thing called Bitcoin. And so they can coordinate and get the best of the market without getting the worst of like just having top-down centralized macro monolithic states. And so um, when I thought about that, Bitcoin just came naturally. And back in the day, maybe I didn't realize that each community can have its own token and you can create some interesting token dynamics. Like it was like even pre-Ethereum. But what I did understand is that Bitcoin is the way, or maybe it's not Bitcoin, maybe it's ETH, but like, you know, there's going to be one currency that everyone can use all around the world to transact. Or maybe a store of value even. I mean, Bitcoin is more of a store of value. And so the way I see it today is that maybe each of these communes or cloud nations will have their own token. And this can all be in the background. The average user doesn't even need to know about all of this. But when there's trade, these things will get swapped and we probably get, I don't know if it's Bitcoin, I don't know if it's ETH, but like they'll get some kind of like store value asset that we can transfer to one another. And the cool thing is that then you can build a lot of incentives or, or interesting stuff in these different coins. Like, for example, if you're a community that really cares about a natural environment and really cares about rewilding the planet, then you can build a fee of like 1%, for example, goes to the DAO for the DAO to choose different initiatives to rewild the planet, right? And this can all be in the background. And as a community, maybe you don't need to even think about it or as a person or a contributor, but it's time you transact that happens. And so I think that that's powerful. But for it to happen, a key component is obviously a global currency. And now we have it. So yeah, technology has matured quite a lot. At some point, is it realistic that there will be just a single global currency and individual currencies will have disappeared? Do you think that that's a realistic or on a scale of probability, let's say on a, on a one to a hundred, where do you think that that falls? I think it's going to be kind of like the contrary. I think currency is going to commoditize so much that we're going to have so many, but we will just not notice really. When I think about it, it's kind of like value flows move. So like you can have different uh, crypto economic incentives. So like, for example, for us, we obviously have a token and this token needs to accrue value for the nation state to be funded. And so we're looking at different like crypto economic flows. 
And so, for example, when you use the court and you want to enter an agreement, you have to stake some nation token as collateral. And I think that, you know, a few years on the road, when we really go mainstream with this, people are just probably not going to know what's going on underneath. They will do something maybe similar to stablecoin. A stablecoin will not take to the dollar, maybe just take to like real consumer price index. And then everything else will kind of like happen underground. And then hopefully there will be a way for them to also capture some value of being part of those communities. In our case, citizens hold nation and they need to stake nation long-term to become citizens. So if the country is successful, you know, they also get some outside of that for being kind of like early adopters and working towards the mission. And I believe we're going to see that model replicated more and more. So when we're talking about inflation now and talking about stable coins, to me, when I fast forward in the future, the concept of a stable coin that is pegged to some currency means that the value of that stablecoin is pegged to, in most cases, to some level of degree, a corrupt regime. I mean, inflation is the introduction of money by a centralized authority that decreases the value of that money in order to buy things. So decrease the buying power of it. That's, to me, at least one of the primary definitions of what inflation is. I mean, would you agree with that, first of all, before I go further? Most definitely, yeah. Yeah. So if we can agree that inflation is a cause of centralized currency or centralized decision-making around currency and enabling a certain core group of people to print more at their whim, if that's what inflation is, then to have a stablecoin that reflects a currency means that the stablecoin is also deflationary in its buying power as a natural repercussion. And if we're going to have a stablecoin that's connected with a centralized government to some degree, then it also opens up controls by that central government to some degree. And one of the most clear examples that I've ever bumped into about why this is a problem is uh, one of my old workers that was in India, I sent them some money on Wise and I trusted Wise a little more than other platforms, a little lower fees, that's great. But when the money was received into his bank, the bank pulled a 30% fee on it. And I mean, 30% of a person's wage as a fee before taxes, right? This is a really significant sum. He was panicking, of course, and it was, I think it was an entire month's payment at that time because we were just setting things up. So we hadn't gone to the weekly and there wasn't a need for a weekly. We just, you know, did a month payment. And so it was a big chunk for him. And at the end of the day, we discussed it and he talked about it with his bank and the bank put a fee that they determined was necessary because it was a foreign currency coming in and they didn't know the foreign source and they had to do research on who the foreign source is and determine whether or not it was illegal or legal. And just the cost in doing that research in their minds justified the cost of the fee. Therefore, the fee was valid and not refundable. And if I was ever to send other payments or if anyone else sent payments, they wanted paperwork filed of who these places are and how and when and where and how much. And then they were going to determine whether or not they could even receive the payments from these people before they could receive a payment. So in some cases, we're talking one or two or three months to determine whether or not a payment could even be received, let alone if there's going to be a fine or a fee or a tax on it pre-tax. So obviously at that point moving forward, we switched to crypto payments immediately and never had that problem again. And the payments went through faster with less fees and less hassle. And that was the solution. So to me, going into a direction of a stable coin that's in any way touching in with a centralized regime is something that is anti-crypto spirit in general. And that leads me back towards why, well, I mean, I'm more in the, in the Bitcoin direction. But a lot of people don't have or share that perspective and they believe in stablecoin and they believe in having a centralized currency that just leverages from the benefits of blockchain. Maybe I'll just pause there for a second. To me, I, I think it's inevitable that if we want a better planet, if we want a better interaction between humans and our species, we need to have a better money system. And a better money system to me would be a Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, 
Stablecoins do have their place in terms of money velocity, because when you think about like holding Bitcoin per se, for example, I don't think Bitcoin is per se the best means of payment, maybe for like national treasuries exchanges or stuff like that. But like people don't want to sell their Bitcoin usually, right? So I do think that like a stablecoin is something that you know is going to slightly depreciate in value. So therefore you want to like, you know, spend it. I think it has a, a place in the world. However, when it comes to the depreciation, <laughs> there are different kinds of depreciation that can happen, right? There is a depreciation that your community chooses in which maybe you want to mean 1% annual to donate to, you know, rewilding the planet. And there is a depreciation that happens when you get a stolen 30% every, every year because of crazy inflation, right? And so I think it kind of like depends. It also depends on how you frame it in terms of the users using it and how they're accessing it. Like, for example, if they are, if instead of like paying for services by selling their Bitcoin, users actually lock up their Bitcoin and mint a stablecoin and then pay with a stablecoin, you're actually helping them build wealth long term. So it depends a lot on the implementation. But I agree that the current implementation of stablecoins spec to the dollar is definitely not the most ideal thing. And we should decouple from that as soon as we can. And I bring all this up because I thought it was cool on your manifesto, you had sort of a four-step process. Well, maybe process the wrong word, but you had Bitcoin and then leading into Ethereum, leading into DAOs, leading to digital nations. And to my understanding, I think what you're referring to is we have a global currency or some sort of a standard currency that we can interact with with each other. And we have, let's say, Ethereum to settle matters outside of the core currency. So let's say voting and governance, et cetera, and, and what other else. Combining that type of global currency and decentralized with a way to settle interactions between the community essentially leads us to having, you could say, a DAO to recognize and formalize that community, let's say in a voting process, whether it's token or NFT. And the combination of those three together essentially creates a digital nation by default. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, exactly. Physically stuck. Yeah. And how long is it going to take for the first digital community to be recognized as a country? What's your prediction? I don't think it needs to. This is kind of like a contrarian opinion, but I don't think you need the skew of stamps of the, of the incumbents for new things to become real. And I think they will probably not get it for a long time because, you know, the incumbents have no interest. So, for example, there was this, this thing that many people in this space are familiar with, Rose Island, this like kind of like abandoned oil like extraction station that was in the border of Italy, but already in the sea. And so back in the day, international waters by UN standards were something like 60 kilometers. And this one was like a bit further away. And so they technically claimed their own state and they technically, legally speaking, had their own state. And then what happened? When people with guns came there and then the UN changed from 60 to 120 kilometers. And also it incorporated some law to specify that for a state to be sovereign, it has to have land that is naturally built is what they specified. So like, there is no point in trying to play a game you're going to lose, right? Because they control the rules of the game. You have to play a different game. And this different game is how can we create a community of millions of people around the world that captures the value that these people are failing to capture, or rather they are capturing too much of without really giving people what they deserve. And that's the game we have to play. Interesting. This is probably a good segue into why you've chosen the name Nation 3. Because on your manifesto, you talked about what is nation one, what is nation two, what is nation three. It's kind of like web three. Every time people ask me what web three is, I say, well, in order to understand web three, let's first understand what web one and web two are. And they're, you know, they're buzzwords. No one really talks about web one. It's not a common thing. But if we're going to call something web three, we have to understand, okay, well, well like, why is it called three? And Jack Dorsey's little jab at making web five, I thought was amazing. 
But in context of Nation 3, maybe you could explain in your own words, what is Nation 1? You called it arbitrary dictatorship and Nation 2 being a monolithic democracy and moving to Nation 3 was what you called a mesh of crypto-powered communities. Maybe you could elaborate and explain the differences between those three. I mean, Nation 1 is kind of like the, the feudal lords, the kingdoms, the very basic notion of a state that is usually like very controlled in a top-down manner and where people don't have much of a say, really. And obviously with like markets that are really rigged and that is very, very primitive. And then with Nation 2, we have started seeing markets that are like more free, still with some control from the government, that, but like the US, of course, did a lot in that regard and became very successful because of how it kind of like liberalized the market. And then they were also like democratic, but also the flaw in itself of, of democracy is that democracy kind of tends to approve or propel the fact that these states become very monolithic because, I mean, as long as you have the, the people's approval, you can keep growing, you can keep spending more, you can keep expanding and expanding. And that's precisely what happened because of the militarization and the increased returns of violence. As they could basically invest more into military and, and become bigger and bigger and bigger, they did that. And they basically started capturing every aspect of the citizen's life and they became highly monolithic. And also democracy has some flaws in the process that we saw. For example, the whole like idiocracy scenario where people just make bad choices because they become dumber, influenced by propaganda, etc., etc. And so Nation 3 is kind of like, how can we take this crazy monolith and just unbundle it completely into different pieces and make the nation a very thin layer that people feel they belong to? which is basically a community, and then just let a bunch of like these pieces and like these, these bundles be there and people can opt into different services. They don't have to like, nation states don't have to own your whole life. And so I think that's kind of like the, the vision. Yeah, nation three has a name. It's kind of like obvious, like web three, nation, and also third time is a charm. So I think this time we'll get it right. I hope that third time is a charm. I really do. <laughs> we got to wrap up here. But this is a question that pops up a lot. Do you think that current politicians should be scared about their jobs? We're going to be reinventing how a country works and how governance works. Should existing politicians be scared? Or is this just a natural change that maybe they should embrace? Yeah, I think citizens shouldn't be scared of their state. I think the state should be scared of its citizens. And I believe that, you know, maybe it's scared in a good way. Like, at least you need to, like, know that they govern you. And I think they have lost track of that fact. And so I, I do believe that it's an opportunity for many politicians to kind of like change into being service providers for maybe like different special economic areas or different cloud nations. I do also believe that realistically speaking, it's not a lot of them that can do that because they play a different game. They play the game of bureaucracy. They play the game of just talking, but not really building anything. If you think about like the machinery that a country needs to run, it's just insane. The amount of like manual work, the amount of like just people that are talking. I look at the like programs of political parties in Spain, for example, I, I looked at many, many of them, and I was mind blown. Like literally, there is less depth on each of the items than the depth that I do when I write a proposal for a DAO. It's crazy. What do they do in their time? God knows. So I think most of them are probably going to lose their job, and they deserve it. And some of them, the very, very few, the 1%, might be able to actually help us build a better future. Earlier, you said that the necessity of other country to recognize an online community isn't a mandatory requirement for the network state to grow and thrive. And I think that you're right. It's not a binary thing. It's not necessary per se. But I feel that there's a, an incredible value in the legitimization of a digital community once a, another country recognizes it and gives it a seat at the table. I think about when El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as a national currency and what that did for Bitcoiners and what that did for the economy of Bitcoin. 
And then shortly thereafter, having the Central African Republic accepted as well. And then Panama maybe coming up next. And then having that summit where there was, was it two dozen central banks and other countries that were discussing accepting it as well. And all of a sudden, as that begins to take shape and as those events unfold, Bitcoin becomes an authority. It becomes a present. It's not something that people debate whether or not it's going to have a future. It's like, no, no, no. That discussion's over. It has a future, period. It's accepted, and millions of people are using it on an official level. And so I, I feel like there's an importance of a digital community, a network state being recognized, the first one to be recognized at an international level. And I don't know what it's going to be or what that's going to look like, but I, I'm really excited to find out. And I'd love to have you on a Twitter space here at CityDAO as well. Maybe hang out for a second after we wrap up here and we'll talk a little more. You know what? I'll give the floor to you here. Do you have any final thoughts or subjects on your mind that you wanted to just share and get off your chest while we're live here and recording? Yeah, I mean, I'm just like super excited about, as you mentioned before, like creating a new system of law. I think I think it can do massive good for like efficiency. You think about this kind of like the meta, meta, meta work, like what has high leverage that improving the way we interact with each other. So if people are interested in kind of like just jumping into a cloud nation, becoming a citizen, or even building and helping the system of law, just nation3.org. We are an open organization, have a bunch of the work tasks everywhere for people to pick up. And yeah, I mean, like when I think about the next generation, I don't want to live on a planet that is burning with a dude that can nuke the whole planet. And I think that's not a lot to ask. I think we can achieve it. I think so too. And, and I think these are important steps that we're taking. They're just fundamental points that need to be made to build this foundation of a better future. And that's why I'm here. That's what gets me excited. That's why I'm a part of CityDAO. And anyone that's listening and wants to be a part of building a network state, I mean, you got lots of options. Obviously, check out CityDAO. <laughs> But also check out whatever you feel that force of gravity, whether it's Nation 3 or, or another one on, on Bology's list of the 20, just get involved, right? Because there's not going to be just one nation state or, or network state. This is a future of the world and it's going to be a lot of different options. So get involved, join the discussions, join Discord, voice your opinion, join the Twitter spaces and think about some of this stuff and maybe even write out some questions that we can answer or even address on the show. Any questions or topics that you want us to address on the show, send me a DM. I'm MemeBrains on Twitter, or you can find me in the CityDAO Discord as well. I'm MemeBrains on there too. And suggest a few topics or suggest a few guests. We'll dive in deeper on wherever there is the most demand, and we'll try and make it as interesting as possible. Remember to leave a, a review and a rating on the show and subscribe and share it with your friends. That's the best thing you can do to support the show. So I really appreciate your effort on that. And until next time, make it a great week. We will see you online and bye for now. 